Good evening everyone Welcome to Evening Dhamma Tonight we're continuing on with the Satipatthana Sutta Looking at, continuing to look at the introduction So there's um, there's only one more paragraph in the introduction, but it really is enough to talk for hours about. I'm just going to scratch the surface. So the paragraph that we're looking at today is enumerating the four satipatthana and giving a brief explanation of how one a description I guess not an explanation of how one practices mindfulness so it's this moment where the Buddha proclaims what, what are the four foundations of mindfulness in the practice of mindfulness what is it based on? if you don't know what the four foundations of mindfulness are it's really an important first um, study first thing to learn at my teacher's monastery it's the first thing he'll teach and in fact it's something he has meditators memorize when they have the opening ceremony he has them repeat what are the four satipatthana body, kaya, vedana, jitta, dhamma and he'll have the meditators repeat three times before he continues to explain and give give the teaching they really are the basis of our practice uh, the actual enumeration isn't that profound uh, I mean it's quite simple but it's another set of fence posts uh, or maybe a little bit different than, than fence posts it's uh, it's markers you know, it, it delineates quite clearly the realm or the framework within which we're going to work, within which we're going to cultivate the wholesome qualities of our practice. If you look at the four satipatthana, it, it's often said that they're really nothing more than the five aggregates which is true uh, the four satipatthana aren't anything new they're, they're a they're a re-mapping of experiential reality so before this teaching the Buddha had of course taught uh, the five aggregates the five aggregates, rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, vijnana. But that explanation, that enumeration of the five aggregates is an, a, a description of experience, of one experience. In each experience there are these five things. Rupa is the form aspect of the experience. Vedana is the, the feeling, happy, unhappy, neutral. Sanya is the perception or the recognition. Sanka Sankara is our reactions or thoughts about the experience. 
and vijnana is the awareness of it so while it is the same thing that we're talking about in the Satipatthana Sutta the four Satipatthana are, are much more clearly a practical uh, framework so when we talk about gayas in the body well it's the same as rupa but here we're talking about practically speaking being mindful of that aspect of experience that is the body when we talk about vedana instead of a part of the experience it's it's a object of focus pain as an object of focus happiness as an object of focus calm as an object of focus this is a practice the five aggregates are not an explanation of practice they're they're deeper than that so the satipatthana sutta is much more practical mundane conventional you know, the four satipatthana don't exist in nature they aren't even really an explanation of nature they're a, they're a teaching an instruction more like pointing out of landmarks on the path okay first take a right and then a left and look out for these things on the path citta is not like vijnana it is the same thing as vijnana but here we mean that experience of thought of of mental activity thinking about the past the future good thoughts bad thoughts a clear mind a muddied mind the satipatthana are, are are a meditation instruction meditating on your own mind and dhamma dhamma especially makes it clear that this is a, a practical teaching rather than a delineation of reality or an explanation of reality because Dhammaism is a, is just a bunch of things, really. It's certainly not a complete set of the Buddha's teachings, but it's quite clearly a progression, going from one set to another set. It's a bunch of sets of things that appear to be a a progression, whereby one who practices and and is mindful of these things and progresses all the way to freedom from suffering so Dhamma is perhaps the most important the first three sort of a, a, a makeup of the practice and the fourth one more of the, the progression that comes from being mindful of or based on the mindfulness cultivated in the first three So it's a convention. The four Satipatthana are something the Buddha created. The Buddha um, set up, established as a practice. Then there's the question of why. Why the f why four, right? It might not be a question we might ask. Are there, you know, or some people might be curious, could there be a fifth one? A fifth Satipatthana? But it turns out there is some reason for there to be four, and four is really a good um, a good number in this case because there are different uh, character types. Some people have uh, passionate temperament, and some people have intellectual temperaments. Some people have. Uh, strong and penetrative wisdom other people have confused and, and muddled minds some people have practiced samatha meditation others have practiced vipassana and the four satipatthana have been worked over and uh, used to uh, worked over by, by, the, by teachers who came after the Buddha and used in in a way that 
allows the teacher to focus on the problem of the meditator or the specific condition of the meditator. So it's interesting to know these things. I mean, I wouldn't put too much, uh, just looking at the commentary, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on this, but it is interesting to look at how the commentary talks about the four Satipatthana. For instance, a person who is passionate, right, some people are very emotional. They don't think with their with their brain, they think with their heart, right? They, they let emotion dictate, so they're passionate. For them, body and feeling will be, will be a much better object, you know, because these are things that relate to the passion. The body relates to lust and attraction, and the feelings relate to desire and aversion. So if someone has weak wisdom, someone is sort of a simple person, but they're passionate, they would focus on the body. They should focus on the body. If someone has strong wisdom but very passionate, then they should focus on feelings, feelings being uh, more subtle. If someone is, on the other hand, intellectual, then they should focus on the mind and, and the dhammas, dhammas being these... Uh, the more intricate aspects of of reality and experience. So if they have weak wisdom, just focus on the mind. A simple person should just focus on thoughts, thinking about the past or future, try to catch the thoughts when they arise. Someone has strong wisdom, penetrative wisdom, a sharp mind, a quick mind, then they should focus on Dhamma, the hindrances, the senses, the complex interplay of the body and the mind. So they really set up a system. You know, the four Satipatthana have been since the time of the Buddha for 2,500 years. This is what we've been using. And teachers who came after the Buddha, the commentary, and well, really, who knows? It could have come from the Buddha himself or someone with the Buddha set it up this way that they understood that it works well to allow you to focus on one or another for a specific meditator. Likewise with samatha, if someone has practiced a lot of samatha meditation, entered into the jhanas and cultivated the jhanas, then they as well are said to uh, be better off focusing on the body and feelings. Weak wisdom focus on the body, strong wisdom focus on feelings. Uh, if someone has practiced purely vipassana, then they're better off focusing on citta and dhamma, the mind and the dhammas. Weak wisdom, focus on the mind. Strong wisdom, focus on the dhammas. And so again, it's interesting to learn about these things. I, I don't think we should put a lot of stock into it as far as letting it dictate where our practice should take us and where what we should focus on in our practice. All four of the Satipatthana will arise. It's just interesting to know which one is going to be more of a trigger for insight, really. You know, someone who's very passionate obviously is going to have some very strong emotions and... Uh, and uh, re re uh, reactions to physical and 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 uh, to the feelings, to the experiences of the body and the feelings, for example. So it's uh, good to keep in mind to know what's going to be of more of a challenge and therefore more benefit for us to focus on individually. But nonetheless, everyone has to focus on all four. The other thing about the four Satipatthana is they relate to the four Vipalasa, which I talked about before but mindfulness of the body relates to subha vipalasa the the vipalasa means uh, misperception or corruption of perception perversion sort of we we is like perverse in this case
So we have these four per, By perversion we just mean Wrong understanding and, Or wrong perception in this case You perceive something ugly As beautiful Or something that's not beautiful as beautiful And so the body is, is An example of this We have this idea of beauty Towards the physical body You say, oh, there's a handsome person A beautiful person Which is really ridiculous Because it's very dependent on Well, it's dependent on delusion, really But dependent on what race we are Dogs find dogs attractive Conceivably, insects find other insects attractive Sexually and so it's not something uh, It's not something real It's not something objective So focusing on the body Allows us to overcome this The, the Buddha taught these four Misperceptions Independent So the commentator says Hey, the four Satipatthana Do a really good job of getting rid of each of these four That the Buddha already taught elsewhere uh, Mindfulness of feelings Allows one to overcome the second, which is sukha vipalasa, the the misperception of what is suffering as something pleasant, vedana. So pleasurable feelings we take as happiness. Oh, this pleasurable feeling is going to make me happy. It's it's, it's something that provides me with happiness in my life. Real happiness comes from experiencing more and more pleasure. This is what we think. Mindfulness of the feelings breaks that Allows us to overcome it And see that feelings are really just Ephemeral experiences There's nothing Objectively good or bad about them None of them are worth clinging to In fact, clinging to them is what leads us to suffering When you cling to pleasant experiences Then you Suffer disappointment at Unpleasant, ex unpleasant feelings The third satipatthana, mindfulness of the mind, allows us to overcome the third vipalasa, which is uh, nitya vipalasa. Nitya means stability or permanence. Again, this idea that something in us or, or in the world around us could be stable or satisf satisfying, could be uh, a refuge for us. If we cling to it, it will last, it will stay with us. And we come to see through mindfulness of the mind that, hey, everything that we hold on to is really just an experience of the mind. What we actually have in this, in samsara, is momentary experiences. People, places, things, these are not something we can possess. All that we can possess, if you want to call it that, is momentary experiences. And because they're momentary, well, we can't really possess them in any meaningful sense of the word either. And so it breaks this idea of anything being lasting. When you look at the mind, when you watch the mind, and you see that everything is just a thought. All of our, all of the people and places and things that we hold dear are just thoughts in the mind, perceptions in the mind, conceptions in the mind. And mindfulness of the Dhammas, which are all the complex aspects of experience, most especially the practical ones, allows us to free ourselves from Atavipalasa, the perversion of self. The idea that there is a self, that anything has a self or a, or a, a core, or that anything's under our control, or that anything belongs to us. Me, mine, I, any of this, anything relating to this. Mindfulness of the Dhammas, our emotions, first of all, the hindrances, uh, the five aggregates, the senses. We'll go over this in detail. But these things allow one to see through the, the wrong view of self. And really that's where the progression leads us. The first three, Satipatthana, lead to the fourth one and the fourth one takes us along to free us from wrong view of self and 
allow us to let go and stop clinging to things as me and mine so stop trying to be in control forcing everything to be the way we want it so that's how the commentary says I, I really recommend if you're really interested to read the commentary this is one of the few commentaries that has actually been translated into English and there's a really good book called The Way of Mindfulness which is basically the sutta and the commentary and even some sub-commentary which gives you really an ancient look at a look at how the mindfulness was understood in ancient times very close to the time of the Buddha so that's the four satipatthana and then in this um, the Buddha doesn't just enumerate the four, he, he describes what it means to practice them. So he says, Ida bhikkhave bhikkhu. Here bhikkhu's a bhikkhu. That's not the full sentence, that's how he starts it. He says, A bhikkhu dwells. Kaye kaya nupasi viharati adapi sampajano sadima. So dwells seeing the body in the body. Kaye Kayanupasi. So first of all a note on the word bhikkhu. Um, the word bhikkhu most likely it seems was originally used by the Buddha to describe a a monk, uh, a Buddhist monastic, which is really an interesting choice of words because bhikkhu means literally one who who begs a beggar I've seen tongue-in-cheek translations of the Buddha suttas maybe not tongue-in-cheek but by people who were one might say a little bit radical in their interpretation or wanting to shake the boat rock the boat shake things up a bit translating as hey beggars The Buddha addressed the beggars. Hey, beggars. It seems to be what the Buddha was was uh, meant by the word bhikkhu. I mean, it's a word that the Buddha didn't make up the word. And I think there's a point there. Uh, I'm not sure it's well recognized or acknowledged that uh, being a monk isn't actually being a monk in the Catholic or Christian sense. I mean, wearing these robes isn't wearing a uniform. These aren't a uniform. It's a rectangle of cloth. There's nothing special about it. What's special about it is how nothing it is. It's really when you think about the spiritual life and, and how you would live in the most simple way. Well, those were the questions the Buddha was asking. Of course, it helps that in India people generally did wear uh, many people did wear simply rectangles of cloth, but you know they would generally fold them up in special ways. And the Buddha said, "No, no, don't do that either." But uh, there were people wearing, I think, uh, pants and shirts and so on, dresses and skirts and all that. Uh, but the Buddha had a, a strict code for his bhikkhus. And I think it's quite clear in much of the code, the monastic, what we call the monastic code or the code of the bhikkhus, uh, is that it's meant to be, hey, as simple as you can. No must, no fuss, no special uh, status or you know, existence. Meaning you're not meant to become something. As a monk, you're meant to not stop being something. As a bhikkhu. You're just a beggar is basically the idea, right? You're a nobody, you're a nothing is basically what he was saying. So that's where the word the bhikkhu the word bhikkhu came to be what the how the Buddha would talk about the monks. Um and then that that was the male uh, form of the word, and then the female form of the word bhikkhuni was a bunch of female beggars. Bhikkhu was a male beggar. Bhikkhuni is just the female form of the word bhikkhu. 
But of course, like many of the words that the Buddha used, it took on a much greater meaning. And when he uses it here, he's not referring only to the monks, clearly. And there were many people in the Buddha's time, or in the Buddha's congregation, who were not monks, who were practicing mindfulness. In fact, it's understood that this sutta was most likely not delivered only to monks. And that's that's fine. The Buddha the Buddha re uh, interpreted the words Brahmin, uh, Brahmana, Samana, uh, and and Bhikkhu. He reimagined. He reinterpreted these words and said anyone basically anyone who practices properly could be any of these things a brahman is someone who expels evil a samana is one who calms their mind and so he he created new etymologies for these words and bhikkhu is another one i'm not sure if it was the buddha but the commentary anyway says bhayang ikatiti bhikkhu Ba, so Bhaya is the Ba And Ika, Ika means to see Bhaya means danger Sangsare Bhayang Ikatiti Bhikkhu One who sees the danger in samsara is a Bhikkhu And the commentary, points, the commentary points this out and says Hey, Bhikkhu here doesn't mean monk Bhikkhu here means one who sees clearly one who accepts the teaching, a person who earnestly endeavors to accomplish the practice of the teachings. Could be gods, angels, they all could be bhikkhu. Uh, the commentary also says, well, he often he often would refer to the monks only like bhikkhus. Uh, but it can also just mean that, well, bhikkhus and everybody else, monks and everybody else. But nonetheless, bhikkhu here doesn't just mean monk, either way. And uh, then it gives a, a Dhammapada quote, I think is what this is, yeah, Dhammapada verse 142, which says, uh, even if one is, even if one is well-dressed in all their finery, Santati, I think this is the story of Santati If they tame themselves even when they're bedecked in jewels They are still a Brahmin, they are a Samana, they are a Bhikkhu Okay, I haven't even gotten to the actual heart of it yet Uh, so, kaye kaya nupasi viharati. Kaye kaya nupasi viharati. Here we have the word anupasi. Anupasi. Pasi means one who sees. Anu just means in regards to. So, kaya nupasi means sees. Sees towards the body or sees the body basically. Kaye in regards to the body, one sees the body. And so, with the, the commentary, you know, asks, What does this mean? Why does he say it twice? Why doesn't he just say he sees the body? This is an important point. I remembered uh, Bahia, this, the Bahia Sutta, where he says, Dite dita matang bhavisati. It's the same thing. It's the same construction. Dite, the a on the end is locative. It means uh, in regards to or in the in in regards to what is seen. Dita matta. It is only what is seen. Matta just means only or merely. Kaye kayanupasi. In in regards to the body, he sees the body. Or one sees the body, dwells seeing the body. It means seeing the body as body. What does that mean? Well, it's the same as dite dita matang bhavisati. The problem is, the problem is not that we don't see the body, or the problem is that we don't know that we're seeing. 
The problem is that it's not all that we it's not the end of the experience, it's not the end of the story. We make we make much more out of it and end up losing, forgetting the actual experience. And the commentary gives another ancient verse that comes, who knows where it comes from, but I actually first heard this from a monk in Bangkok. Uh, let me see. This monk. Uh, this monk. Yeah. He's a uh, uh, famous teacher in Bangkok. Gave a lot of talks, and they've turned them into MP3s, and I would listen to his MP3 talks. There's an it's an ancient verse. It's not from the Buddha. It's not even from... Well, it's probably from the ancient commentaries that no longer exist, that we no longer have. And it goes... Uh, Yang pasati na tang di tang Yang di tang tang na pasati Let's see if I can find this I'm going to partially memorize Yang pasati na tang di tang Yang di tang tang na pasati Apasang bajhate mulho Bajhamano namuchati It flows off the tongue really It's an easy one to remember and the, and the English is quite curious, or the translation, the meaning. What he sees, that is not seen. What is seen, that he does not see. Not seeing the fool is... What is budget here? I forget. Is bound. Is shackled. Bajamano Namuchati, being shackled, he he can't free himself. He can't be free. So what he sees that is not seen. It's a riddle, really, right? What does this mean? What it means is what we see is all the concepts. You know, when you see table or 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 and when you see person, when you see me and mine, when you see good and bad, all that isn't real. That's not what you're actually seeing. Seeing all these things that are not actually seen, that are not actually experienced. And then what is experienced, one doesn't see that. So the actual experience of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling and thinking, it's totally gone from one's radar. It's no one no longer interested in that. Suppose there's a noise, a loud noise, where we're never really interested in the actual noise, we're just interested in yelling at the person and the person who is making the noise, right? We don't actually focus, if we just m focused on the noise, we wouldn't have a problem with it. And that as a result we're bound, we're bound, why? Because we're lost, we don't know what's going on, we don't have clear awareness of reality we, how could we possibly solve our problems possibly find the right solution to our problems how could we possibly do the right thing where we spend most of our energies is on things that don't exist that which is not a part of reality so in regards to reality see reality that's it body is just body and then the second part of the sentence atapi sampajano satima this I've talked about, this is in my booklet Any of you who have read my booklet Know that we go over these three things We put a great emphasis on this part of the sutta Atapi means effort He does, he or she does this with effort Sampajano with Clear comprehension Satima And with mindfulness So these three sort of form a rudimentary understanding of what it means to be mindful. 
not that you do one and then the other you don't start with effort and then clear comprehension and then mindfulness these three qualities constitute mindfulness effort means mindfulness is a practice the Satipatthana Sutta is about work it's a training mindfulness is not just sitting there and opening yourself up to experience it's not something passive Me meditation was never meant to be passive meditation is a mind training a training of the mind you don't get good at tennis by just letting the ball hit itself letting the but just by holding a racket right you don't get good at running by standing still you have to train Atapi is this effort. So what does this look like? This is the effort of the meditator to send the mind to the object. You know, when you when your right foot is moving, where's the mind? Is it with the right foot or not? It can only be there's only two answers. It either is or it isn't. It isn't kind of. It isn't just gonna go there by itself. Not in the beginning anyway. So the effort to keep the mind with the object. When you hear something, keep the mind with the sound, grasp the sound, there's effort there. When you see something, the mind that grasps, fully grasps the experience without letting it flit here and there and everywhere. Keeping it focused on the object that is present. Not letting it get caught up in liking and disliking and reaction. Sampajano, Sampajano is the aspect of knowing the object. Of course, when you have the right effort, it's the effort to know the object. These, th these are part of the same activity. These aren't separate. So it feels like a knowing. When the right foot moves, do you know the right foot is moving? Janya, jano, one who knows. Pa, pa means, means uh, well or... or, or, or uh, not fully, but but means strong. But but janna, but janya in this case means like wisdom. That's where panya comes from. Sampajano, pajano, that part. If you look at the word sampajanya, it's it's one of these Pali words. If you know Pali, that just tells you so much. If the Buddha had said jano, it means he knows, or she knows. But sampajano, he's telling it. It's quite clear what he's saying. He's saying, oh, like real, no, real knowing, real and full knowing. Meaning with wisdom, pajano means with wisdom, and sang is kind of like fully or um, all the time, constantly, completely, uh, decisively. It has all those potential senses, so it's it's providing emphasis, both of these. What it means is this is mindfulness. When we use the English word mindfulness, we're talking about you're fully comprehending the object. This is the grasping the object. Are you aware of the right foot, the beginning and the end of the right foot moving? The beginning and end of the left foot moving. When the stomach rises, do you know that it's rising? You think, well, yes, of course I know, but not sampajanya. Normally we know, but we don't know. We think we know, but we're lost in thinking about it. Oh, my, how is my stomach rising? We get lost up in concepts. And satima, satima doesn't mean to know. Sati, sati has nothing to do with knowledge. That's the sampajano. Sati means to remember, to remind yourself. Satima is the uh, stabilizing the mind. So sampajanya has to do with the clear awareness, but it requires, and it goes together with satima. Sati is the grasping. It's the sorry, I said sampajanya is the grasping. Sampajanya is the knowing. Sati is what stabilizes the knowing. So why it's called the Satipatthana Sutta is because this stabilizing is what allows the effort and the wisdom to function. 
So the practice of the mantra, which is an ancient practice that was clearly used by the Buddha and, and his followers, is, um, is, is, is this key to cultivating the, the clear awareness. When you say to yourself, stepping right, you're actually reminding yourself. The, the mindfulness that you're cultivating, the sati, is what grasps the object says, hey, this is seeing, this is hearing, this is feeling, this is right, this is left, this is rising, this is falling. And we'll see that the, in this sutta, the Buddha is quite clearly uh, implying this sort of um, practice as we go through the sutta. And finally, the last part of this very densely packed paragraph is Vineya Loke Abhijja Domanasang. And there's a little bit of controversy about this, uh, few, these few, few words, uh, because it seems to be saying, having given up uh, desire and aversion for the world. And so the teachers are all concerned because it sounds like it's saying, so you've you have no more defilements when you start to practice sati or you have to give up your defilements before you practice mindfulness it's clearly not the case clearly because part of the satipatthana sutta is focusing on the negative states so if you've already given them up what the heck and so they tend to explain this as as just a grammatical construct that can be interpreted in a special way meaning in order to give up that's what the commentary says. We're practicing mindfulness for what? In order to give up. I mean, you could look at it as the ideal, right? We're practicing mindfulness, and once you're truly mindful, then you've given up the world. You've given up any kind of attachment to the world. It could also be understood as before you practice mindfulness, you have to give up all your attachments, right? You have to give up all your conventional attachments, meaning you have to come to the meditation center. You can't be, um, you can't easily be mindful when you're caught up in your ambitions in life and your relationships and so on. If you don't dedicate yourself, if you don't give up all your ambitions in the world in regards to the world, you really can't easily progress. So it may just be saying that, but. The teachers tend to say, no, it, it rather means this is the point of the practice. And so he's describing a, a perfect state that once you are truly mindful, you've given up. You've given up any attachment to the world. So through the practice, through the practice, we give up any kind of attachment or aversion for the world. I, I think the big, the real point here is that it's about freeing ourselves from our reactions it's about freeing ourselves not from experiences but from our attachments to them our um, diversification or it's the word papancha however you translate that um, making more out of things than they actually are our uh, extrapolation of them blowing them out of proportion. That's really what mindfulness is all about. It's about getting to this one-to-one -one where we actually experience things just as they are. Not one thing is a million other things or is a problem or is an issue. No, things are what they are. Experiences are what they are. The body is just the body. Feelings are just feelings, thoughts are just thoughts, emotions are just emotions, experiences are just experiences. So, there you go, that's the introduction to the Satipatthana Sutta. Now we'll try and go through each, uh, each of the paragraphs. I'm not sure, I don't think we'll skip any, but some of them are, are less interesting for us in the practice of Vipassana than others. I think we can have something to talk about for each of them.
So that's the Dhamma for tonight. What is restlessness? Is it different from desire? And the problem with that sort of question is they're just words. Depends what you mean by restlessness. Generally, the, generally this is a fairly simple example to, to answer. Restlessness is generally considered, as we define it, quite different from desire. Restlessness is just the agitation of the mind. It's based on delusion. It's not that one desires something, although desire can lead to restlessness. But restlessness is just the mind that flits here and flits there, often because of worry or, or feelings of guilt or that sort of thing. Doubt, doubt can lead to restlessness. Does an understanding of anatta eliminate the fear of death? Yes, uh, I mean, by understanding... Uh, depends what you mean um, but in general when you really understand non-self there's nothing to fear because nothing is happening to you right experiences arise and cease there's no experiencer you know, it's, they're not a they're not a um, problem for you because there's no you there's just the experience and when you see that, then it's really innocuous. Okay, here's three things that aren't exactly questions. It's more like asking me to give talks on these things. I'm going to talk about these things. I don't know. You went through all the trouble to... It's a monk as well, it looks like. You went through all the trouble to write that out, but uh, I think not tonight. Isn't one of the main purposes in life to help others and do good deeds, etc.? Um, you know, purpose in life is very much up to you. What do you mean by purpose in life? The main purposes in life. You know, there's no such thing. Well, it's up to you. Is that your main purpose? Well, then yes. If it's not, then no. All we deal with in Buddhism is cause and effect. What does it lead to? If you help others and do good deeds, what's the result? That's what we're interested in. Because once we see what is to our in our best interest, well, then we know what to do. Would you recommend meditating for two hours straight or have one, two separate one-hour sessions? I mean, I've answered this many times, but you know, again, um, if you do two short sessions, many short sessions, it's too short. Right? If you do one long session, well then you've got this space in between where you're not actually being mindful or not doing, committing to the practice. So somewhere in the middle, there's no uh, hard and fast rule, but I certainly would do something like one, two separate one-hour sessions would be better than two one two-hour session per day, that kind of thing. But if you do many short sessions, well, you start to lose the benefit. Are using pharmaceuticals to treat anxiety and or depression disorders harmful to attaining enlightenment? Yes, absolutely. Now you're asking me, and I don't have a quote from the Buddha to back it up, so I'm just going by my own experience. And it's not even first-hand experience, but every any person I've dealt with, I've come in contact with as a meditator who is taking pharmaceuticals to treat anxiety, depression, even strong painkillers for people dealing with chronic chronic pain. It gets in the way. There's no there's no doubt about it. There's no you know it just changes their practice. I even had one person who lied and and um, on their application didn't say that they were on 
depression medication and was clear throughout the course and something was wrong, you know, they just weren't progressing until finally they, they admitted it. And I said, well, then we can't do the course. It's quite clear. It's no surprise to me. The revelation wasn't a surprise because they weren't progressing. So I'm sorry to say, but... And people don't really understand why this is, and so they get upset when I say this sort of thing and, and claim that I'm just biased or whatever. But if you understand what we're talking about here, this isn't a, something you can control. This is about having a completely objective experience of reality. And anything you're doing to just the, the act of, of medicating yourself is, is avoiding the problem. Whatever it is that you're covering up is what we need to come to terms with. There's no way around that. Now, I mean, that having been said, I mean, theoretically, is it possible to be, still become enlightened on them? Maybe. Maybe it is. It doesn't seem to work from what I've seen. And it's not really surprising that it shouldn't. So those are the questions for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night.